It has certainly been mentioned already this morning, but how delightful an opportunity that we have today to come together on an occasion such as this one with the comfort and convenience of a structure and a building like this, and perhaps with the holidays thoughts on our mind. As I've heard the conversation shared by many this morning, it seems that those with whom at least I was able to hear enjoyed a nice holiday of family and fellowship and plenty of, of good things to be shared. And certainly that's a wonderful exercise to help us ever remember the grandeur of God's blessings upon our behalf and the richness not only of things physical, but also of things spiritual. As we noted last Lord's Day morning from the 136th Psalm in our study, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good. Those kinds of ideas perhaps prompt us to look at another Old Testament passage this morning, one that in fact is entitled to air and vision. It is the case as we contemplate the 28th chapter of Isaiah, and I'll ask that you turn there with me as we look more intently at that 7th verse of that chapter. But in addition to try to appreciate more thoroughly the background of that text, as well as its application for us by virtue of other scriptures, even in our life today. For some introductory comments or thoughts about that, may I ask you to notice that particular phrase a bit more carefully. To err in vision. That phrase does occur in this text, for it says, But they also have erred through wine, and through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. We might notice that there are several pronouns utilized in that passage. There's the word they. We will need to identify those to whom that word refers and to ask in other ways about the scriptural presentation what might be in that that could be useful instruction for you and me today living these so many centuries removed from the time that the inspired prophet Isaiah penned those ideas and those thoughts. The word vision, as we often perceive it in the scriptures, very clearly has reference to a supernatural communication from God to a given individual. As for example, Abraham was blessed to have a vision in which God revealed to him a specific set of information and some specific ideas that he needed to know about that he was the father of the patriarchal family and the father of the patriarchal nation. Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1. But isn't it true that you and I today often employ that word vision a little bit differently? And I specifically, I'm not talking about the capability of the eye to see. We know there are, are optometrists and those who specialize in the profession of helping us see clearly. But sometimes we use that word vision in a way that I've attempted to describe as mental acuteness. That is to say, keen foresight. Isn't it true that you and I often appreciate those who have a keen insight and can act in a way that best allows them not only in the present to be successful, but also in the future to do the same, to weather difficulties or oppressions, whatever they may be. For they have had the foresight to prepare, to do so with acuteness and effectiveness, and to be ready to thus employ that vision in its reality that they have seen. We often highly compliment those who behave using a vision like that. Not as though, again, that there's anything miraculous about it, but they think soberly, 
logically, analytically, clearly, with recognition of what the future matters may hold, and they've attempted to make appropriate preparation for it. As one contemplates that usage of the word vision, a good question might be this. Are there those in our day and time who in fact stumble and fail in a way similar to what those did in Isaiah's day, who again erred in vision? I believe each of us could appreciate it would not be a compliment to us at all if it is said of you and me that he or she has erred in vision. That you and I have purposefully chosen to engage in one or more activities, certain matters if you please, that have clouded our vision, that have in fact caused us to stumble in the nature of judgment, and that have led us to engage in things that are rather disgraceful and that are condemned in the very nature of the God of heaven. That will be our subject this morning to ask, what might be one of the principal ways today, just as it was in Isaiah's day, where that kind of activity in fact takes place, where you and I can very easily be led to stumble in judgment. Near the close of that screen, I ask you to notice again the context of this reading. Starting even from verse number 1 in Isaiah 28 and reading all the way through verse 8, one of the principal discussions of that text is easy to perceive. Let me just highlight some of the things to be seen in it. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. Already in the opening verse of that chapter, we have been given a very clear description of a problem that was rampant in the days of Isaiah, and a problem that God, in fact, through his inspired prophet, desired forcefully and powerfully to deal with. As we consider only that, notice verse number 8 as well, the closing verse of that paragraph. For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness, so that there is no clean place, or no place clean. There is a description of a type of lifestyle that, in fact, was very prevalent in ancient Israel, but one, in fact, that God felt the need to address in the most powerful and graphic language, language that you and I can't mistake today either. Let us turn our attention to and see very interestingly the conclusions to be drawn from this text itself. The subject, of course, relates to the consumption of alcohol, the consumption of these inebriating liquids, things that, in fact, enable one to see very clearly the kind of individuals and the kind of behavior that was so prominent in ancient Israel. As we move through the study today, let's begin looking also at what is no doubt the strongest, the greatest drug problem facing the United States of America today. I make that statement very clearly, and I make it without apology. For even as far as I know, all every statistic I have ever seen indicates that without a doubt the strongest and most severe drug problem we have is not heroin, it's not oxycotton, and it's not cocaine. It's beverage alcohol. It's consumed by the tens of gallons of tens of thousands of gallons a day. And our breweries turn out millions of gallons every year of it. And yet as they do all of that, notice often the very attractive way in which it is set before the public, including you and me of course. There are the things that are added to it, like fruits, and it's called these nice, catchy names. Not only that, the recording industry prints out song after song that seems to laud the glory of it and encourages it to be inebriated and encourages it to be consumed. 
as our, some of our most famous singers of the land seem to sing about it and seemingly lift it up in a funny, cute way. Might I suggest that our young people are listening to those songs, and even we as older ones are as well. And as we walk into the stores, be it Walmart or otherwise, and we see a whole aisle full of it, we need to ever be reminded that our children and our co-workers and our neighbors and our friends and we ourselves are under a constant barrage of attacks from inebriating alcohol. As we ask about what was God's response to it in Isaiah's day and what should be his response and what is his response today, we might, of course, note that his response ought to be the same as ours. It's a fair thing to notice, as I mentioned earlier, that that constituent, the primary one admittedly in alcohol that makes it the drug it is, is ethyl alcohol. And today, at least in part of the lesson, we will notice some facts of science that should aid us to appreciate the drug characteristic of alcohol. But perhaps one final thought upon that screen before you at this moment. We each understand, too, that there are a number of approaches that can be taken to the subject. If you listen to the radio or read newspaper articles or listen to even other articles in magazines and journals, there are some who will say that abstinence is the only approach to beverage alcohol, that its social consumption is not to be approved under any circumstances and in any fashion. There are others who will say that's too strong. The proper approach is moderation. You can drink a little all you want to, so they say, as long as you don't allow it to overcome you with complete and total drunkenness, if you will, complete and total intoxication. That is to say, the message is one of moderation, or so these individuals claim. There are others who will go so far as to say that the subject is immaterial. It doesn't matter when you drink or how much. If you want to get completely drunken, that's fine. Just don't hurt anybody. In essence, it seems to me there are three possibilities then that others in the world seem to use to approach the subject. I might submit to you today that our interest is not what any man may say, even the federal government's Office of National Drug Policy. Though that may be of interest, it is not eternally what's important. Didn't Paul, in fact, present the question most wonderfully in Romans 4, verse 3, What saith the Scriptures? It should be our interest to ask, What is God's position on the subject? And what approach does He encourage in the Holy Scriptures? If you and I can settle on that, if we can allow God to speak to us in that fashion, we will have settled the matter completely, will we not? And so, without further delay in matters like that, let's open the Word of God and allow it to lead us to a conclusion relative to the subject before us this morning. We could begin in the Old Testament and move all the way through the New as we look at various occurrences and usages and passages in which reference is made in one way or another to the consumption of either intoxicating or non-intoxicating beverages. As we can appreciate, there are hundreds of passages that speak to wine or some other strong drink. Might we appreciate in terms of that, though, that that does lead us to see caution must be employed. As you and I approach text in the Holy Scriptures, it is not always the case that a text will come out and say that it's intoxicating or that it's inebriating. In fact, the word wine in the original Hebrew and Greek can mean either one. 
So when we read a passage, just because the word wine appears, we shouldn't immediately presuppose that it means intoxicating wine. It may well not be. In fact, there are several places where it obviously is not. In Isaiah 65, for example, wine is said to come straight from the grape. Now we know when you freshly squeeze a grape, it does not produce intoxicating wine. It produces pure grape juice, nothing more, nothing less, and yet it's called wine in the Scriptures. In Genesis 41, when Joseph interpreted the dream of the butler, and he said he squeezed the grapes and produced wine or liquid for the Pharaoh, clearly that was not intoxicating when he squeezed the grape. That's just two passages among a whole host of others. Again, urging caution on our part. As we approach a text, we mustn't assume that it's intoxicating, for it may not be. But also, we mustn't assume it's not intoxicating, for it might well be. In fact, in the text before us this morning, we shall, I think, easily be able to see that the discussion leads us to understand which is which. The text that I have asked you to consider first are from the Old Testament. As we start in the book of Isaiah... The book, in many of its 66 chapters, makes at least an indirect reference to a problem that was very severe in the days of Isaiah. If we turn all the way back to chapter 5, verse number 11, there the text reads, Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflame them. Isaiah, early in the book, by again the inspiration of heaven, addressed a problem that was to be seen in the nation of Israel. Now these were not foreign individuals. They were God's people. They were those who had been brought out of Egyptian bondage. They were they who, in fact, were given the law at Mount Sinai. But notice in the intervening years, a great problem had developed among them. And it was a problem that would lead to their dissolution and their ruin if they didn't take care of it. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning. There were individuals extremely interested in the pursuit of intoxicating beverages. Notice the language, till wine inflamed them. They weren't merely consuming grape juice or water or any other liquids along that line. It was liquid that was able to inflame them. And notice just a few verses later in that same chapter, verse 22. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink. We can begin to see, as often as Isaiah has mentioned it already, a great problem in ancient Israel. Now, did God overlook the problem? Did He allow them to merely drink all they wanted and just ignore it? He did not. Through His prophet, He pronounced a woe upon them two times in the same chapter. And then we come to chapter 28, which is where we read earlier, as Eddie read for us. In chapter 28, again, notice verse number 7. It had become so great that not only the people in general amongst Israel, but even those who certainly ought to have known better, like the prophets and like the priests, they too had come to be overcome with the pursuit of beverage alcohol. Notice again the word they in verse number 7. But they also have erred through wine and through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. 
The problem had become so great in Israel that even the religious leaders were the very ones participating like the others in the pursuit of this social consumption of beverage alcohol. Isn't it amazing? That, of course, presents a warning to all of us. Just because we know better in terms of what the Bible teaches, any of us could find ourselves tempted by it and perhaps in a moment of weakness may find ourselves overcome. Oh, how cautious we must be ever understanding the ploys, the tactics, if you please, of Satan himself. On this occasion, notice also they err in vision. Can you imagine one of these priests or prophets, drunken and yet attempting to deliver visions to the people, claiming that God has communicated with them when in a drunken stupor they would have been able to share nothing of the truth of God to the people? Furthermore, they stumble in judgment. These should have been those who were in a position to execute and deliver matters of very stern and sober-minded judgment to the people who could come to them, who could seek advice, who could seek direction for the greatest import and matter of life. And yet they were drunken. They were those who were unable to deliver sound judgment, who were unable to deliver the kind and practical advice that the individuals needed. Doesn't it seem interesting that almost three millennia have passed between Isaiah's day and ours, and the problem is just as bad, if not worse now, than it was then? We need to be exceedingly aware of the fact that those three approaches we noted earlier, on the one hand, total abstinence, on the other, moderation, on the other, that it's immaterial, it wasn't immaterial to God, or else his prophet would not have asserted a woe against it. And furthermore, we might notice, where in this text does Isaiah identify the fact that moderate drinking is okay? Keep that thought in mind as we turn our attention and look at a couple of other Old Testament texts, but then to the New Testament we shall go. In this Old Testament, let's notice also in Proverbs 20, verse number 1, in the opening chapter of that book and Pro that chapter in Proverbs, the writer there says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. The clarity of that passage is still a remarkable thing to cherish, isn't it? Let's notice the language. Wine is a mocker. I've helped us appreciate what the meaning of the word mocker is in the original Hebrew. That language of which the Old Testament was written, at least primarily, it has reference to something that is an abomination, something, in fact, that is a scorner, something that is to be avoided. Wine, the inspired writer said, is a mocker. It's abominable. Now, pausing only to ask, do you suppose then that that identifies something that's to be pursued in, moder in moderation? If something is an abomination, if it's a scorner, if it leads to that which is to be avoided, is it to be approached in moderation? We seemingly don't take that approach toward anything else that I can think of. For instance, I don't believe anyone would encourage lying, but is lying in moderation okay? Is sexual sin in moderation okay? Interesting, getting it, how differences seemingly can be made. Approaching subjects that have a bit of interest to certain individuals, isn't it? Notice that no sin is ever to be approached in moderation. 
Sin is an ungodly, evil, wicked thing. It will separate one from God. It will cause one to be lost. And his soul will be forever tarnished in the fires of an eternal hell. No matter what the sin is, moderation toward it is not only dangerous, it's damning. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. That word raging has reference to brawling. It leads to great difficulties in terms of mental decisions in life. In terms of brawling, notice the growling aspect of it, which in many ways is what the original word means. The inspired writer Solomon here helped us see in great clearness one of the things about wine. Now might we ask, which wine do we suppose he's talking about? Is this pure grape juice? Is it grape juice that's diluted with water? I don't believe anyone would so argue. And three chapters later, in Proverbs 23, he even identifies the point more thoroughly. Beginning in verse 28 of that chapter, Solomon gives an inspired description of the kind of wine of which he's referring. It's the kind that makes the eyes red. And it's the kind in which one will stoop over and consume it for hours on end, leading one, in fact, to great difficulties of both mind and body. And doesn't that help us to see the clarity of which wine is under description? And yet he says that it's a mocker. It will not tell you the truth. You may think it'll help to solve the problems of life, but it will not. In fact, it does nothing but exacerbate those problems. For when one does come back to one's soberness and senses, the problems are still there. But now one also has an additional problem, and he's wasted time and money consuming something that hasn't benefited anything. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. In Habakkuk 2 verse 15, we notice a pronouncement by the minor prophet Habakkuk where he said, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink. Again, it's fairly easy to see from the context the kind of drink under description, isn't it? God is not condemning a person who gives a neighbor a glass of water. He isn't condemning a person who gives his neighbor a nice glass of apple juice. What he is condemning is that one who would lead his neighbor to engage in activities unwholesome to God by having prompted it in providing liquids that have been led to intoxication. They of Chaldea were guilty of that sin, and Habakkuk said, Woe to any man in either Chaldea or Israel who would do the same. Habakkuk's language is rather to the point, isn't it? But just as surely as the Old Testament has identified and led us to contemplate these matters, our greatest interest still remains in the New Testament, doesn't it? Do any of the New Testament books, the 27 of them, the law under which we live today, address this point in any way? That answer is yes, and might I encourage us to begin to look at some of those texts as well. Might we begin in the fifth chapter of Ephesians? In the heart of the Ephesian epistle, Paul addressed a group of individuals, that church in Ephesus, and they too were warned very sternly about some things. Some of them related to various activities of worship. Some of them related to various activities of lifestyle, like sexual sin. But there's one particular reference in verse 18 that should capture our attention this morning. Paul wrote, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Be not drunk with wine. It is certainly a very great temptation on our part 
to use the word drunken and to read into it in that passage the meaning that you and I appreciate it to mean today. When you and I, for instance, perhaps see an individual and we describe him or her as drunken, we mean that person, at least in our estimation, is totally overcome by alcoholic beverages. The person is no longer in sound judgment. The person can't perhaps drive, walk straight, is not of an individual to be consulted or to seek advice from at this particular moment in time. But now let's ask, is that what the word drunken means in Ephesians 5.18? In the possibility of translating from the Greek language into English, does our word drunk, as we perceive it, mean the same as that word drunk in Ephesians 5? In order to help answer that, I've listed the definition of that word in the Greek. What does that word mean in that text based on the Greek language? Thus, when Paul wrote it and when God gave the word, here's what he meant. To begin to be softened. To begin to be softened. To begin to be softened. That, in fact, is the same definition as given by four of the most recognized Greek lexicographers. That is, those who've made a study of the Greek language and are experts in it. All four, Vine, Young, Thayer, and Bloomfield, all of them when consulted say that that's what the word drunken meant, that word methusko in Greek. To begin to be softened is thus descriptive of a process. It's not the end state. It's the whole process, first drink to last, to begin to be softened. Paul wasn't just condemning this person who was completely and totally intoxicated. He was condemning the partaking of or consumption of alcoholic beverage in any amount, be it half a drop or two or three gallons. It doesn't matter. To begin to be softened. And if that's the thrust of the meaning in that text, wasn't Paul's statement incredibly encompassing? To begin to be softened. As one makes note of that very idea, I have attempted to then state again some of the comments made by those rather noted lexicographers that drunkenness is a matter of degree. A person who's had six beers is drunken. A person who has had half a cup full is too. It's just the degree that's different. Both are drunken. Doesn't that help us appreciate then that the word Paul used is exceedingly strong and here's a New Testament writer. It's not as though we didn't have respect for Isaiah or Habakkuk or Solomon in the book of Proverbs. Here is the inspired Apostle Paul commanding the Ephesians, be not in such a position to begin to be softened with wine. That's an amazing concept, isn't it? And oh, if only our world could appreciate it today. The thought then relating to this begin be softened, perhaps leads me to notice, does science have anything to say also about this idea? The students who are listening to me this morning in school probably remember hearing and listening to the fact that the brain is recognized to consist of three principal regions or sections or parts. There's the cerebrum, there's the cerebellum, and there's the medulla. And as science has learned much about those three and what they accomplish in terms of the human body and its activity, I've listed one other thing that to be noted so interestingly from the science today. It has been found that parts of the cerebrum, 
that part that is the logical, analytical, thinking aspect of the brain, it is affected by notice. One drop of alcohol per 10,000 drops of blood. Friend, that's 0.01%. 0.01%. One drop of alcohol in 10,000 drops of blood is enough to make a noticeable distinction in the activity of the logical reasoning aspects of the brain. That's overwhelmingly strong, isn't it? That seems to harmonize beautifully with Paul's appreciation and his thrust in Ephesians 5 to begin to be softened. It's not thus possible for you and me to say, one beer is fine, but two is not. A half a beer is fine, but six is too many. One drop of alcohol, even when mixed with 10,000 drops of blood, is enough to begin to dull the senses, is enough to begin to cause one to err in vision, to stumble in judgment. The same kinds of language that Isaiah used centuries before. The thoughts relating to that part perhaps take us to other passages also in the heart of the New Testament. This one in Ephesians only prepares us for these that are yet to come. For the New Testament provides several commandments. And I use that word very carefully. Commandments. May I ask you to notice with me the first one in 1 Peter 4, verse number 7. On that occasion, as the inspired apostle Peter was writing, he made reference to the fact that those to whom he wrote, those individuals who were the followers of, interested in being the devoted servants of Jesus, were to be sober. There again is a rather dramatic danger. We today use the word sober as though it has relation to a person that's not drunken. What does that word sober in the Greek imply? What is the meaning of it? And if we look at various translations like the ASV or the ESV, we may see a part of that shine through. But to help matters, I have tried to list what that word means again from the original language. As it's employed in that text, the word is sophroneo, and it means to be of sound judgment and to be of sound mind. We thus are commanded that if we would be pleasing unto God, should be individuals who desire always and in every position to be individuals of soundness of mind, to make those decisions in accordance to and in harmony with that that would be of soundness in mind. Now, what does that indicate about one who would purposefully imbibe something that would lead to a dulling of the senses and a dulling of the capability of living in soundness of mind? That is a very good question, isn't it? And one that it seems the answer for which is self-evident. And if that isn't strong enough, there are some other passages that also employ the word sober. Let me call your attention to the Thessalonian epistles. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 6 and 8, twice in that chapter, there is again a commandment to the following thrust. Let us who are of the day be sober. We've often noted in our studies that the phrase let us is a phrase that has all the force of commandment, for that's the way Paul so often employed it in the Roman epistle. Let us who are of the day be sober. Now that word sober in the Greek is a different word than the one in 1 Peter 4, 7. Let me define this one. It's the word napho, and it literally means to abstain from wine, period. That's what the word means, period. 
That is no interpreter's estimation of the meaning. That's what the word means, to abstain from it. It would seem that in the strongest of languages, we have three passages, those two in 1 Thessalonians 5 and one in 1 Peter 1.13, that highlights for us the thought that here is a commandment to abstain from the social consumption of this wine. That kind of idea, it seems, flies in the face of this teaching of moderation on the part of some, and certainly on the part that God views it as immaterial. It is not an immaterial subject to God. It's exceedingly strong. It's one that he's addressed in all these passages and highlights to us in language that we should ever seek to appreciate. As surely as one can see that point, perhaps we can notice one other passage as well, also found in 1 Peter 4. We noted verse number 7 just a few moments ago, but now let's notice verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 3. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. There are six things listed in that passage, and the first three are not the specific topic for our subject this morning. But beginning with the last three, we notice he says, excess of wine, revelings, and banquetings. I suppose the first one, the excess of wine, is somewhat easy to appreciate. There is Paul's, in, rather Peter's inspired way, of making reference to and bubbling over, if you please, with wine. Those who have consumed and consumed and consumed it. These, no doubt, would fall under the description that you and I today would say as being drunken. But Peter does not stop there, does he? He goes on to say, revelings. What are these revelings? I've listed the definition as follows. Revelings has reference to feasts and drinking parties that would appear to have involved carousing. Thus, Peter makes note that there were these in the Gentile families of that day engaging in this. And Peter said, those who come over into life in Jesus should not be given to such behavior. But then in the next place, he makes reference to banquetings. That word banquetings, by definition, again from the Greek word, means drinking or drinking party. Isn't it amazing that here the inspired apostle has reference to a drinking? I would again submit it certainly can't be water, and it certainly can't be any of these other things like milk, for the context wouldn't permit that. This is a kind of drinking that leads to the other abominable behaviors that are mentioned in that text. And again, Peter condemns it. We've noticed Paul's strong statement. We've now seen Peter's. We along the way saw Solomon's and Isaiah's and Habakkuk's. I believe we've reached a fair point of being able to draw a conclusion, a summary statement. And I would submit that it might read like this. As one imagines the statement of 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from all appearance of evil. I suppose it would be fair then to say that beverage alcohol, the social consumption of alcohol, is something that in fact, as we've seen in the scriptures, does involve an erring in vision and consequently a stumbling in judgment. But as if that isn't enough, 
we've noticed that it too, by virtue of the fact it's a drug, can certainly become addictive, is described by God as an evil, and it brings nothing but grief. But then, perhaps some other statements corollary to those that we have previously seen. Drunkenness, which we have thus appreciated before, is a matter of degree. A matter of degree. One drunk or one drink or a half dozen. A matter of degree. That takes on a whole new significance when we read passages like Galatians 5.21. When it says that among those that will not inherit heaven, drunkards are one of them. Friend, that's almost frightening, isn't it? In its directness. How can we misunderstand that? How can so many in the world have misinterpreted and misunderstood it? Could it be that we simply haven't allowed God to define our thinking? Could it be that we simply have not allowed God to determine the human approach toward it? All the national policies that are enacted, if they miss or do not take advantage of God's teaching, have missed the final point, haven't they? Not only that, in Ephesians 5.18 again, we saw Paul's statement, Be not drunk with wine. That is the process to begin to be softened. As we thus strive to not only keep ourselves apart from this social consumption of beverage alcohol, let's encourage those about us and help them too to see the blessed light of God as it relates to this subject and to try to encourage them to behave better, differently, and in a way to influence others in the pathways of rightness. This morning, perhaps we can now ask another question of ourselves individually. Are you a member of the church? Have you had your sins washed away by the blood of Christ? Do you live faithfully walking by His side day by day? If we could be of assistance today in your becoming of a Christian, realize the Lord made this demand of you. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. And if they have included the consumption of alcohol, repent of those things. Turn your mind away from them. Confess Jesus also to be the Son of God and be baptized for the remission of sins. If you've become a Christian, thus the Lord added you to the church, but maybe you have lived in a way of which you're not proud and which the Lord isn't proud either. You can come back to your first love. You can make a statement of acknowledgement of sin to others and we'd be more than happy to pray on your behalf that you might be forgiven by God of those sins so that you can live in fellowship with Him. Today, if either of these would be the need and desire of your heart, we would urge you and ask that you let it be known, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing.